Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and comedy, keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company, and you can find out more about this terrific organization, johnsonsairconditioning.com. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy. He's the chairman of the Cato Institute. He's also a constitutional scholar. We'll be talking about the pros and cons and the policy and the law, as well as the constitutional validity of the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa. He's a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. He'll be joining us, as well as Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston and author of many books, his latest, How Everything Happened, Including Us. Well, it is September the 29th, and on this day in, I'm sorry, 30th, it's the 30th, and on this day in 1954, the USS Nautilus, the world's first nuclear submarine, was commissioned by the U.S. Navy. The Nautilus was constructed under the direction of U.S. Navy Captain Hyman G. Rickover, a brilliant Russian-born engineer who joined the U.S. Atomic Energy Program in 1946. In 47, he was put in charge of the Navy's nuclear propulsion program and began to work on an atomic submarine. Regarded as a fanatic by his detractors, Rickover succeeded in developing and delivering the world's first nuclear submarine years ahead of schedule. In 1952, the Nautilus keel was laid by President Harry S. Truman, and on the 21st of 1954, First Lady Mamie Eisenhower broke a bottle of uh, champagne across its bow as it was launched into the Thames River at Groton, Connecticut. Actually, I remember that on black and white TV. It's a visual uh, image in my mind right now. It was commissioned on September the 30th, 1954, and the first ran under nuclear power on the morning of January the 17th, 1955. Much larger than a diesel-electric submarine that preceded it, the Nautilus stretched 319 feet and displaced 3,180 tons. It could remain submerged for almost unlimited periods because its atomic engine needed no air and only a very small quantity of nuclear fuel. The uranium-powered nuclear reactor produced steam that drove propulsion turbines, allowing the Nautilus to travel underwater at speeds of excess of 20 knots. In the early years of service, the Nautilus broke numerous submarine travel records and in August 1958 accomplished the first voyage under the geographic North Pole. After a career spanning 25 years and almost 500,000 miles, steam the Nautilus. How many times is that around the world? Just think about it. 500,000 miles. The Nautilus was decommissioned on March the 3rd, 1980. Designated as a National Historic Landmark in 1982, the world's first submarine, nuclear submarine, went on exhibit at the historic uh, uh, site in Groton, Connecticut, which I visited, took my boys through it. It was uh, kind of an exciting family time for us. Nevertheless, uh, the nuclear submarine was a big, big story. Of course, the big story is uh, the debate, but let's touch first on what's happening on some local news. There are 40 new cases of COVID-19, additional two deaths in Cuyahoga County on Friday. Uh, they're both related to somebody that was known to have COVID-19, excuse me, COVID-19. So not uh, one's 61, one's 82. The seven-day average uh, on 9-27, September the 27th, is 29 uh, new cases per day over that seven-day period. 19 patients currently are hospitalized. We've seen numbers as high as 140, so it's come way down. The curve has certainly flattened, and uh, certainly thank the governor for what he's done. Well, the numbers of consumer confidence rose in September to the highest level since the coronavirus pandemic began. After the number of cases declined and the economic for economy forged ahead, uh, now the index of consumer confidence rose to 1018 this month, from 86.3 in August, the conference board said Tuesday it was the biggest one-month increase in 17 years. And here's a quote, a more favorable view of current business and labor markets continued, coupled with renewed optimism about the short-term outlook, helped spur the month's uh, rebound in confidence. That according to Lynn Franco, a senior director of economic indicators on the board. So good news. 
I'm uh, really pleased to see what's happening. Markets uh, futures are down a little bit right now, but uh, because of the uncertainty of what's going to happen with regard to stimulus and the election. But uh, irrespective, irrespective, we forge on. What did you think of the debate last night? Joe put up a good fight but refused a drug test or inspection for an earpiece before the debate, and he didn't answer Chris Wallace's questions. He pretty much evaded them. And following the debate on Tuesday night, uh, Hispanic voters on Telemundo overwhelmingly gave the debate to President Trump 66 to 34 percent. So that's the first result that I've seen so far. But President Trump and, uh, of course, Joe Biden sniped and snarled repeatedly during their first debate, a meeting that was supposed to offer voters a clear contrast in policy and temperament but more often provided a stage for the two candidates to have a food fight <laughs> it was to vent their personal grievances. It was pretty amazing. It was. I, th- I thought I'd be going to bed early, but I stayed up for the whole thing. I found it uh, more exciting than watching a football game. It was pretty fun. Uh, the debate was commercial-free. That was good, and moderated by uh, Chris Wallace from Fox News, who was said to be organized around six central topics including uh, the records of the candidates, the coronavirus pandemic, the economy, race, and civil unrest, and election integrity. But that neat, tidy structure was tested as opponents criticized one another and leveled personal attacks, including Trump targeting Biden's, Biden's family and Biden going after Trump's finances. Now, sober discussion of serious public policy topics was largely derailed by snide and uh, remarks and retorts between the two rivals. Will you shut up, man, Biden asked Trump at one point during the crosstalk. That was really a productive segment, wasn't it? Will you shut up, man? So Biden, he did make the personal attacks, no question. At another moment, Trump mocked the two-term vice president's intelligence. Last in your class, not first in your class, Trump said about Biden's academic credentials, which, of course, he he claimed. He actually said he went to Delaware State uh, College, and the dean of the college basically said, no, he didn't. He didn't do that. It's amazing. Biden was initially vowed a fact check uh, to fact check Trump and was warned by staff to keep his Irish in check. Appeared visibly rattled at moments and bemused at others. I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody know he's a, knows he's a liar. Biden said. <laughs> but about midway through the debate, Biden added, exasperated, "You're the worst president we've ever had." Uh, that's certainly subject to debate, uh, Mr. Vice President. Well, the key point came when. Uh, Trump broached Hunter Biden's lucrative appointment to the board of Ukrainian gas company Burisma and his business dealings in China and Russian transactions pivotal to Trump's impeachment. My son did nothing wrong, Biden said. This is not about my family. It's about your family, the American people. He doesn't want to talk about what you need, he said. Well, the first question focused on forthcoming Supreme Court fight in the pending case uh, determining the Obamacare constitutionality. Trump claimed the Democrat Party was plotting to eliminate private health insurance and to introduce socialized medicine plans akin to those pro- proposed by Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Elizabeth Warren. I'm, not, I'm the Democrat Party, he said right now. The platform of the Democrat Party is what I, in fact, approve of, Biden said, of course. I think that's really a stretch of the truth. That's certainly not the case. Anyhow, asking Trump whether he had a health care replacement plan, which, of course, Trump has already announced. But irrespective, defending his push to replace the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Judge Amy Coney Barrett before the election, Trump replied, you just lost the left. And he certainly did. I mean, uh, Trump said, hey, how about this Green New Deal? And uh, Biden said, I'm not for the Green New Deal. Well, you go to this, his website, it certainly says he's for the Green New Deal. So a lot of exaggerations. I think he was having a hard time. He's trying to avoid questions and uh, trying not to. I, I think Trump should have said, hey, hey, uh, all you folks that wanted the, uh, the other guy, he's uh, kind of left you because he's not supporting the Green New Deal. Anyhow, after months of insinuating that Biden was senile before promoting unfounded claims that he was on performance-enhancing drugs, Trump tried to raise expectations by underlining Biden's debating record, established over a half-century in politics, but he quickly returned to his sleepy Joe quips. It was great. It was a, it was a thing to admire. Uh, like no other traditions during the pandemic, the debate uh, departed from precedent. There were no handshakes, and there was in the room capped with a handful of aides, guests, audience members, reporters, and TV crews. To me, watching Chris Wallace uh, try to run this thing, uh, I think he 
Chris Wallace, no doubt, was kind of siding with Biden. I could see that. But he's also frustrated because he couldn't contain the two candidates and get them on track to answer the questions that he was uh, he was offering. But nevertheless, the debate was, first of all, entertaining. Don't know that it was so informative. I think uh, Biden was trying to evade questions and not telling us exactly where he's coming from. Uh, Trump, I think, did a magnificent job of performing on his feet, uh, a really a great uh, a, a great performance. Now there's going to be, I think, two more debates before the election. But uh, I'm not sure that, in my view, I think Trump won handily. We'll see how uh, the American people feel about this. I'm sure this is going to come up later in the show. Andrew Jopp, I'm sure, is going to have some energy around this. Coming up, we're going to visit with, uh, oh, by the way, this segment of the show is brought to you by Johnson's Air Conditioning. Certainly, I'm grateful to them for their support. They're Naples' longest established air conditioning company, and in our building, they take care of uh, our building as well. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Coming up is Bob Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute. Uh, we're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Gulf Shore Playhouse, devoted to creating professional New York-style theater at its very best and at affordable prices, presents a fabulous new season of productions beginning in November with a world premiere of a one-man show written by and starring the talented associate artistic director of Gulf Shore Playhouse, Jeffrey Bender. Pinup Girls opens in January, singing a cavalcade of hits inspired by real letters from our troops overseas. Inspired by what they find funny, romantic, heartbreaking, and sexy, the ladies put on a show that celebrate the guys and gals who fight to defend our country. Bang Bang opens in March, written by legendary actor of Monty Python fame, John Cleese. You'll surely be wiping away tears of laughter with this one. William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream opens in March. Meddling parents, impetuous young lovers, and cunning fairies collide in Shakespeare's enchanting classic. Another Revolution by Jacqueline Bircher opens in May. You won't want to miss this timely new work about finding hope in one another through the uncertainty of the world around us. What a terrific season of productions. Tickets for this great new season are available now. Tickets start at only $38. Tickets can be purchased by calling the box office at 866-811-4111 or visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best, and they're building a great new performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. Right now, we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is a constitutional scholar. He's an author. He's also the chairman of a terrific think tank in Washington, D.C. It's called the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Uh, for our listeners uh, who may not be familiar with the Cato Institute, maybe you can tell us about it. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C., as you noted, and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government. www.cato.org on the web. 
Thank you so much, Bob. And, uh, you know, uh, right now there's a lot of politics around the uh, nomination and confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. So I thought we could have a discussion separate from politics. Is there a legal or constitutional impediment on replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg prior to the election or during the lame duck period? There are no constitutional impediments to uh, confirming a replacement for Justice Ginsburg, either uh, prior to the election or prior to noon on the 3rd of January, at which time the new Senate will be seated, or prior to the inauguration on on uh, the noon on the 20th of January, at which time the new president takes office. So what the Republicans are trying to do is strictly in, in agreement with the Constitution and the underlying laws. Okay, so there's a bunch of noise around that, but has, does how does McConnell explain the possible contradiction between the Republican position when Merrick Garland was nominated and Republican position now? Well, in the Garland case, McConnell stated that Garland shouldn't be confirmed in a presidential election year, during which the Senate and the presidency are controlled by the by opposing parties, uh, and he argued that when that happens, the voters should have an opportunity in the upcoming election to uh, determine who's going to nominate the next justice. Mm -hmm. uh, in replacing Ginsburg, uh, McConnell noted that the Senate and the presidency are controlled by the same party, and he pointed out that the voters elected or re-elected a Republican Senate in 2016 and then expanded the Republican majority in 2018 accordingly, so he says, uh, the voters have already spoken, and if uh, President Trump were to nominate a replacement for Justice Ginsburg, as in fact he has uh, before the election, then that nominee uh, would get a vote on the Senate floor. That is exactly what's going to happen. All right, so, so what are the arguments against McConnell's current position? Well, look, his, his original premise was the voters are entitled to weigh in, and he distinguished the Garland case. Uh, where the voters had been ambivalent. They elected a Democratic president, but a Republican uh, Senate. Uh, in the Ginsburg current case, the, the voters elected both a Republican president and Senate. But, first, McDonald really didn't allow a vote in the Garland case. He refused to even hold hearings. So his claim that the voters should speak is a, a little bit hollow. Secondly, the voters in 2018 even though they expanded the Republican majority, they were motivated by a heck of a lot more issues than just judicial confirmations, although that was certainly one of the ones. The 2018 vote was two years ago, and a lot has transpired in the meanwhile that could impact voter sentiment regarding the court and what would be more indicative of voter sentiment, uh, a two-year-old vote uh, cluttered by a lot of other issues or a vote 44 days uh, tied in major part, you know, before the election, tied in major part to uh, the uh, the death uh, just recently of a Supreme Court justice. And then finally, McConnell seems willing to confirm a nominee during the lame duck, which is after the election. So mm -hmm. how does that comport uh, with the principle that the voters should decide, especially if the Democrats should win the uh, upcoming presidential and Senate election? So that that's the argument on the against McConnell's current position. What are the arguments in favor of proceeding now with confirmation? Well, there have been 29 vacancies in presidential election years or during the lame duck, and the president has nominated somebody every single time. Uh, Lincoln, uh, he did wait until he was reelected, but all the others did not. Uh, in 10 of those uh, pre-election nominations, nine were confirmed when the president's party uh, controlled the Senate. In six... Uh, uh, only uh, nominations, only one was confirmed when the opposite party hmm. uh, controlled the Senate. So the precedent supports uh, McConnell. Um, we, we, we are, of course, in uncharted waters because uh, of the court's current composition, the polarized political climate, uh, the timing of Justice Ginsburg's death so close to the election, and frankly, the willingness of both parties, not just the Republicans, both parties, to play uh, hardball politics, and that started way back with the Bork nomination, but more recently mm -hmm. included the Democratic elimination of the filibuster. And then, of course, all of these confirmation tactics and even threats, uh, as we've heard, 
uh, to expand the number of justices on the court. So this this is a game of hardball politics. The Constitution permits hardball politics, and uh, we shouldn't be surprised that that's what we're seeing. You know, what, what's your view of the Garland versus uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg distinction? Well, you know, at Cato, we don't take any position on political issues or uh, or, or on the uh, question whether that distinction is principled or merely uh, opportunistic, uh, other than to note that, you know, it exploits the current political balance, doesn't violate the law, doesn't violate uh, the Constitution. So, you know, our folks at Cato, they'll, they're going to have a lot to say about the jurisprudence and the qualifications of Amy uh, Coney Barrett and about the legal and the constitutional questions that the court's going to be addressing. But We'll leave the underlying political issues for other folks to discuss. Well, there's certainly a lot of discussion going on. So, uh, do you favor confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the uh, Supreme Court? I do. She's young, uh, 48. She's conservative. She's a textualist, believes in reading the Constitution in accordance with the words that are actually in the document. I think um, because of that, she will be good on deregulation, good on things like school choice, guns, uh, the non-delegation doctrine, that is the tendency of Congress to give all of its power to these administrative agencies. She'll be good on campaign finance, free speech. She'll be good on affirmative action, federalism, religious liberty. Uh, she wouldn't be my choice on some of the social issues, such as gay rights, uh, drug legalization. She wouldn't be my choice, probably, on immigration, although I'm not positive about that, as well as maybe privacy. I think she shows some tendency to give the executive more power than I would. She might not be my choice on voting rights uh, or deference to the legislature. But on balance, when you weigh all of those things, she's much better, in my view, than any nominee we would likely get uh, from a Biden administration. And by the way, she has a stellar background, so no question about her qualifications. She was a Seventh Circuit judge. She was a law professor at Notre Dame. She was She's Catholic and anti-abortion, but, you know, her family situation is quite admirable. Seven kids, two of them are adopted uh, Haitians. Uh, one of them has Down syndrome, so she is quite clearly a mother of some terrific accomplishments and wonderful, uh, stellar background. Yeah, certainly is, and uh, I, I admire her personally, and I certainly admire her position. I, I admire the fact that she uh, works from the Constitution, not from her feelings and thoughts around what's happening in in society, so are uh, putting emphasis on that. Uh, uh, well, next week, I'd like to talk to you about uh, drug legalization, because that's such an important topic. But uh, do you, uh, Did you watch the debate last night? I, I did. Uh, <laughs> I did watch it. It was more theater than it was uh, public policy. I think it was disappointing. I think it was an embarrassment um, that uh, the two people that are vying for leadership of this country... Uh, end up standing up there shouting at one another and uh, it uh, it was a shame because we had an opportunity to hear some something about the public policy distinctions between these two guys and we didn't hear any of that and well i, I certainly agree with you it was great theater but not very informative in terms of where people right. where they stand on their issues so exactly I, so uh, bob levy again the chairman of the cato institute i genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show thank you so much for joining us great to be with you bob thank you so much bob all right coming up uh, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm going to try to do this. I'm trying to. I've got new equipment now. I think I mentioned to you. Well. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You listen to the Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com 
Tom to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Just hearing that St. Matthew's House uh, commercial, just genuinely support them. And, of course, uh, Jerry Holacek and the staff at uh, Lulabee's Diner support St. Matthew's House in a big way. And they, pro- they provide great breakfast and lunch. And I hope you'll visit them in the Green Tree Shopping Center, Lulabee's Diner. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. Now we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So, uh, first question, did you watch the debate last night? I, I did watch it uh, with anguish and with scorning. Um, it's probably the first uh, event I've seen, let's say it's a sporting event, where both teams lost, including the referees. <laughs> uh, it, 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 was a, it was a no-win contest uh, across the board. But having said that, yeah, let, me, let me make some points that, that might matter. I think the main thing on the table in the debate was uh, can Joe Biden hold up for an hour and a half, and and I did. He did that. Yeah, I thought he sustained his his consciousness and his articulation fairly well, uh, and I think that was the major win. If there's one to emerge from that, that Joe Biden uh, is is able to intellectually handle uh, discussions. Um, I thought that uh, President Trump, um, in the first time in his presidency, Bob was facing a large American audience. Uh, Republican, Democrat, and Independent, and I think his job there was to impress them uh, with his presidential demeanor and his uh, articulation of issues. I think he he failed in that. Now, why did he fail? He failed to a large extent because um, Chris Wallace, I I believe, was was not uh, doing his job, was not interfering with the the comments being made by, by Joe Biden. I uh, made some notes here about uh, Biden's comments that Wallace did. He said uh, to, to the president, will you shut up, man? Keep yapping, man. He accused Trump of uh, ranting and being a racist and a liar. Uh, he, he called him a clown. All of those remarks stood without challenge from, yeah. uh, from Chris Wallace. Uh, Chris Wallace also initiated a question to Biden that he never insisted that Biden answer, which was, would he pack the courts and do away with the Senate filibuster? Uh, and, and Biden dodged that with some uh, uh, non-specific answer, and, and Wallace never never uh, forced him into into comments. Um, hey, you know, you know, Andy, I, I give you just one op- uh, observation while I'm thinking about it. Is the one thing that I think Biden did that uh, Trump should consider in his next debate effort? He addressed the American public and, and told them what he intended to do, and and uh, the president didn't do that. He addressed the moderator and he addressed uh, the, uh, Joe Biden. So. Uh, yeah, I, I, I thought, now, of course, the content of what Biden had to say, in my view, was totally ridiculous, but irrespective, I, mean, th- I think it was a good move uh, in terms of the communication process. Content in the long run, Bob, tends to have very little uh, impact. What we're uh, going to uh, take out of the debates typically is a psychological and emotional response. And I think that with Biden looking into the cameras, talking directly, and of course, he was 
he, he was trained to do that. There's no doubt that he was he was well trained, I, I might add. And and I, I would also say that for a man of such enormous accomplishments as, as the, the president, uh, I thought he failed to, uh, to 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 document that primarily because he inserted most of his his major points uh, as uh, as interruptions of Joe Biden. Therefore, they didn't have the significant impact that they should have had. Yeah. Uh, overall, I was disappointed that a man of such tremendous accomplishment, speaking to a large American audience of all p- political stripes, was not able, in my estimation, Bob. Uh, to demonstrate that for the American people. Well, I, I will say this. The only thing that I've seen that's emerged in terms of any rating of the, of the debate is the uh, Telemundo said that Hispanics preferred President Trump to Biden 66 to 34 percent. To me, I thought that was uh, jaw-dropping. That was information. That was in terms of the debate or in general? In, in, the, in terms of the debate. Well, look, that, that's encouraging. You know, I, my expectations, you know, can... Uh, uh, might have distorted my uh, my impression of of what was going on. Uh, I know I wasn't happy with uh, with what was uh, taking place on the stage. The uh, the lies of Biden that were not being uh, challenged by Wallace and, and uh, the president tried his best to uh, insert reality in, into this debate, and uh, I believe he did not succeed in in that process. Uh, his failure to overtly condemn the Proud Boys and. I don't, but by the way, this is another problem that Wallace inserted. Uh, he uh, implied that white supremacy was a major part right. of the violence. Right. Secondly, he asked the question of Joe Biden, uh, which introduced the, the Charlottesville uh, absurdity that, uh, that Trump had supported white supremacists at Charlottesville. And in the nature of the question, Wallace introduced this major talking point for Biden. So um, I was not happy across the board. I, I think the president, considering uh, what I regard him as, as a great man, did not demonstrate that. Uh, and I think that Biden, uh, who was being uh, questioned in terms of uh, his mental abilities, I, I think held up. So I, if I was to say, was there a winner that emerged from this based on the audience for that, for that uh, debate, uh, I would say that Biden was probably the one that emerged victorious. That is such interesting commentary. In my mind, uh, I thought that uh, he certainly appealed to his base. I don't think anybody changed their mind that supported Trump uh, and said, you know, I'm not sure I want to do that. I think he he definitely fed into what I think has been his narrative continuously since uh, since he well, since he came down the elevator, or uh, but. Uh, I'm not sure he persuaded anybody in the middle of there who's undecided at this point. Biden, of course. You know, that that's, that certainly is, is always hard to, to say. I, I would add that, you know, one of the, the laments that was uh, hurled at Trump uh, consistently is that he's a bully. And, uh, you know, again, you know I'm a big Trump supporter, but I, I thought that his aggressiveness was, was overdone. He was, uh, he was angry as far as uh, coming on the stage angry, Bob. And I thought he, uh, he appeared to be a bully. Now, Again, you know that I, I am a, a committed Trump supporter, huh. uh, but I was disappointed. That, that's, I guess, the bottom line of what I would say. All right. Well, I appreciate that. I have some other things I want to talk to you about, Andy. Can you stick around? Absolutely. All right. Now, this is the exciting point. I'm going to try and uh, go to the commercial break on my new equipment. I just bought a new iMac, so see if it works. It does. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Do 
you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity, maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. And uh, now working with this administration on health care, uh, doing a terrific job. You can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.com. Org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now, we're going to continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, uh, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Bob. So, Andy, uh, we're going into this. I just talked with Bob Levy, and he's pointing out that this uh, move forward with Amy Coney Barrett is totally constitutional. I want to get your thoughts uh, from a cultural and political standpoint. What are your thoughts? Well, let's let's just support Bob's position on that. I mean, there's no doubt that it's uh, it's a uh, it's a legal and constitutional position. Uh, we know that uh, during the president's last term in office, historically, there have been 27 uh, Supreme Court nominations that have been confirmed, and in that last year, when the president and the Senate are of the same party, so certainly there's nothing uh, unconstitutional about it, and there's nothing even outside of of, of existing Senate precedent about this. So uh, it's a certainly a legitimate situation. Uh, the candidate herself is just an outstanding, uh, an outstanding woman by, by every measurement as a human being and as a jurist. Uh, if we look at, I'm always amazed at the woman's movement when they're so willing to, uh, to, uh, to destroy the, the best of them. And certainly Amy Coney Barrett is, is, is one of the outstanding women in, in America. Uh, if, if she gets confirmed, then I, I, I remain convinced that she will be confirmed, whether it's immediately before the election or immediately thereafter. I believe she'll be confirmed. Uh, that'll create a, a solid 6-3 um, six, 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 situation, I'm sorry, on, on the courts, which will take Roberts out of play. And I think there's a very solid chance we can begin to get some constitutional actions taken uh, that were never possible before. So uh, I'm really looking forward to having um, uh, confirmed, sitting on the court, uh, and restoring constitutional dignity to this country. So uh, if there's a major point of optimism, it is her nomination and ultimate confirmation. Uh, such interesting commentary. We'll point out that many Supreme Court uh, decisions are 7-2, not necessarily divided along political. Uh, I think, you know, Gorsuch has been surprised in some ways. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, it, the judges, I think, are really trying to be collegial and work towards uh, constitutional issues. There are a couple of judges on the, on the bench or, who are, you know, more activist. But, uh, you know, I think they're doing not a bad job. Well, well Bob, that's very gracious of you. I totally disagree, of course. <laughs> um, if we look at any decision that has a political connotation, uh, over the last uh, whatever time frame, the uh, last 20 years, uh, every decision that had a political connotation was 5-4 e- either way. Uh, good point. Uh, so I, I think you're right. I think that there are many decisions that are just uh, obviously what they are, and they're not political by, by, by nature. Uh, but where it has been political, every one of the left-leaning judges uh, certainly has, has voted exactly as you would have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you get back to uh, the late uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, in every politicized decision, we knew exactly how she yeah. was going to vote. There was no deviation. Yet on the right, there's constantly been questions asked, how will Alito vote? How would how would Kennedy have voted? How would uh, And certainly how would Roberts have voted? So we can see uh, uh, on one side of the issue, 
that there is a, a constitutional thinking process going right. on. On the other side, all we have is a political process that's going on. Well, yeah, that's a great point, and I'm ha- Andy, I'm happy, happy you brought that up. And of course, Amy Coney Barrett will make that difference on the court when when it's involved uh, a very political decision. So, uh, I, you wrote a column about Occam's Razor. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I found it so uh, fascinating. Maybe you could tell us about it. Well, uh, uh, Occam's Razor, by the way, is a uh, the Occam's Razor is basically a statement that uh, in in most decision making circumstances, the simplest answer is is the best answer. And, and so, I highlight the uh, the federal government or government in general, Bob. They they tend to, to deal with things with undue complexity, mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps that's a factor of there being five hundred and thirty five. Uh, people in Congress and then uh, so many federal judges across the the country that it's the inevitability of the mass of people that you're going to have great complexity. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't very simple answers uh, that might be found to handle what seem to be uh, irresolvable problems. Just just as one example, I I, I would give if the Congress merely stated. Merely, they make it sound so simple, but if they just merely stated that no one entering the country illegally can ever be granted citizenship and voting rights. Now, that doesn't seem to be unduly harsh if we allow them to stay, if we give them the right to, uh, to permanent residence, but no citizenship and no voting rights. And certainly what that would do is I, I believe the, the left would totally drop out of the immigration issue because their intent is to load up the, uh, the voter polls, voter uh, uh, registration with these uh, illegals ultimately. And by the way, Bob, I think a case can be made certainly that if they take the Senate, the House, and, and, uh, and the presidency, that what we're going to see is at least 30 million I- illegal immigrants and families uh, given citizenship with extended rights to vote. And I would suggest at that point, it is pretty much over for any of the red states, Bob. Uh, good point, Andy. It's, but then, you know, to your point with uh, Oakham's razor, that's a simple solution to a complex problem. Well, I mean, that's I, I offer some that are facetious. For example, <laughs> for example, I suggest in terms of medical care for illegal immigrants, we should build our medical care facilities. Uh, on the Mexican border, you have the indoor, you treat them, and the outdoor leads right into Mexico. Uh, so you have both things being accomplished. You get orphan medical care and deportation at the same time. Uh, obviously, that's, uh, that, that's facetious. Uh, but on the, on the other hand, uh, on the other hand uh, we, we do have to deal with issues in a, uh, in a far more penetrating, and I think if you penetrate the issues uh, uh, deeply enough, you can come up with the simplest answer that would at, at least uh, solve the problem to the largest extent. You know, Andy. Uh, w- right w- now, we don't do that at all. No, we don't. And uh, you know, and usually the solution to problems is the government creates the problems with uh, the laws that don't work or the policies of the institutions that aren't working properly. So the solution is more government. In other words, let's make changes, uh, political changes to the organizations and to the s- decisions we've already made. That creates a lot of the problems. One of the well, reasons. Well, I'm sorry, Bob. No, I was, you know, I'm just saying uh, I have a guest on tomorrow from the Cato Institute, uh, who Michael uh, Cannon, who is the uh, head of uh, director of uh, healthcare studies at, at the Cato Institute, and we're trying to work work through what is the best solution to have, you know, having a a, a good good uh, healthcare situ- situation here in the United States. Well, I mean that that was I, I I'm gonna look I probably will actually get up and listen to that Bob. So <laughs> it sounds worth doing. Uh, you know, I thought in terms of the debate last night when they try to deal with the complexity of healthcare uh, in 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 two minutes for each each uh, candidate uh, making a point. It, it's an impossible format to discuss anything of of, of that complexity, especially when uh, and you know I don't want to accuse Biden of of lying, but certainly. Uh, I think this lying means he's conscious of what he was saying, uh, but I think he was uh, offering comments that were obvious distortions of, of reality that also applied to uh, to climate change. I don't even know why climate change was in the discussion. It's right. a, uh, a peripheral issue Like uh, at this point. I don't even know why it was there. I don't even know why the president's taxes were there. How did that manage to just squirm its, its nasty way into this whole process. Well, you know, Andy, uh, usually in, in many cases, the question is more important and more uh, 
impactful than the than the answer. And again, I think Chris Wallace simply these questions that were lined up were hurt or set set up in order to hurt the president's chances. I think you're absolutely right. Bringing up client, climate change it makes absolutely no sense. Bringing up the president's taxes makes no sense. It's got nothing to do with policy uh, uh, going forward. So. I don't know. It was uh, last question for you, Andy. Did uh, did this debate hurt or help the president's situation going forward in the election? I think it hurt him, Bob. Interesting. I mean, I, I'm not saying dramatically. I have no way of measuring yeah. that. But uh, if I can judge by my reaction and my in my barometer for all things true, my wife. Uh, I think I think we're looking at uh, some damage that the president uh, did to himself. Um, I, I may not be a, a death knell, but certainly I think he, uh, if, if we can weigh both candidates, uh, Biden proved that he could think at least for an hour and a half. Uh, I think Trump uh, reinforced this image across the board that he's a bully. I think that was uh, the problem. Um, and no issues really were, were uh, resolved, obviously. But I think on those two situations, I think that uh, probably Biden emerged with uh, whatever the vote count might be, slightly enlarged. All right. I, I respect your opinion. My thought would be no impact. I don't think it had an impact for or against the president moving forward in the election. Just my thoughts. Well, I, I hope that's the case, because I think it's either that or or what I said. Yeah. So I, I prefer to believe you. One of the rare moments. <laughs> Andy Chaffa, again, my one of my favorite guests on the show. I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk soon, Bob. All right. Thank you, Andy. All right. Coming up, we're going to visit with uh, Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston, space architect, and author of How Everything Happened, Including Us. That's just one of the books he's written. Such a fascinating and interesting man. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And learn more about the new Performing Arts Center being built in downtown Naples. You can visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell. He's endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's the author of several books. Almost all of them I've read, uh, the latest, How Everything Happened, Including Us. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Bob, thank you for having me on. It's a 
It's always, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. You know, I think everybody watched the debate last night. Did you watch it? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we sure did. Uh, it was quite a food fight. What were your thoughts about the, any any th- thoughts about what impact the whole thing may have had on the election? I'm not sure it has much effect. I think people are pretty well dug in. I think uh, mm-hmm. those who hate Trump's personality probably didn't grow to love him any more than they did before, and and I think those who uh, didn't saw uh, Biden as not being responsive to realities around him and that reinforced but I think a lot of the the rancor and the the exchanges didn't do much to uh, clarify positions on issues and I think part of that is that they just tried to cover too many subjects in a short time so everybody was both sides are trying to uh, get their talking points in as quickly as possible but it didn't really shed a lot of light on anything couldn't agree more, Professor. Well, your column shed off some important light. Your, your column is entitled, Did Biden Sleep Through Trump's COVID Response? And, of course, Biden has been extremely critical of the president on how he's handled this whole thing. It's, it's theater, in my view, but what are, what are your thoughts? Well, I don't know what else uh, Trump could have done. You know, I think he, in terms of, of course, the criticism... Everything I hear, you know, pretty much from either side, uh, is sort of you take an issue of the day and then you kind of imagine, if I were a campaign manager, how would I spin it? So we get a lot of spin, and I think when you look into the spin cycle, you, you realize that, uh, you know, there a lot of these arguments are, are pretty weak. But when, I think if you look at the broad brush picture of Trump's response, he he did close the border, and I think that was with China. That was difficult, and later with Europe. And he, he did both of those quite early against the advice and inclinations of a lot of advisors. And, mm-hmm. of course, didn't know much about the virus at that time, and getting some very conflicting information from WHO and from CDC and so on. So nobody had the answers. There were no health experts that had all the answers, and... But I think there was a, there was a rapid response in terms of trying to close down the you know the borders and and uh, and then the you know the effort to bring all the pharmaceutical companies together to to uh, really wage a major effort against it was hard to deny. I think a lot of the um, equipment and, and so on that was lacking was largely at the door of a lot of the states that had the equipment, and they gave it away yep. previously. And so there are a lot of these things that I don't see any way you can put blame on Trump. And uh, and uh, the fact that I think we're at least hopeful about having a some kind of uh, vaccine and, and therapeutics are proving out so fewer people are dying. Uh, couple of friends of mine just came down with COVID and, and, uh, they're not young. And, uh, so, uh, I think that it's certainly unconstructive, but understandable that, that these kind of charges are made. Yeah. To me, I mean, there's this, I think the pandemic of fear is more contagious and uh, certainly more impactful than the coronavirus here in the United States. And I think that's basically what he's doing. And I'm talking about Biden uh, walking around with his mask and all. He's basically saying, well, that the president has done is killing people. And if you vote for me, I'll keep That's his, I think, you know, of course, he has no plan to back it up. And his criticisms of the president are unwarranted. But it's, I think it's all a political ploy. Well, and I think of people going in the voting booths and thinking, now what? When you clear the smoke, what is, what is it that really is going to you know, be important to them? And in my view, of course, one of the big things is is security. You know, security both from you know from uh, the kind of violence and disruption and instability we see, and increasingly, I, I think even the suburbanites are realizing they're not immune. And so, you know, I think that the civil disorder is disturbing to a lot of people and we see it on television and it's 
it's real. The destruction is very real. Uh, obviously, the economy is important because people worry about their pension plans and their their lives and their children's uh, futures and all these things. So, so that's really important. And and uh, I think that and I I tend to be a conservative in that sense that I think that that uh, you need to incentivize people, not build big government, to do that and 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 keep taxes uh, controllable and. And so on. So I think I think that the economy is 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 a very large factor. I think that national defense is is an, is an important factor. And, and uh, I think a lot of the I think a lot of the racial strife. I, I'm really disturbed by the you know projects we talked sixteen nineteen project and the rewriting of history and destruction of monuments and history and the wokeness and and, and all the stuff that goes into really. Uh, 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 tearing down our history and pretending to do that we're a systemically racist country. I, I thought it was rather telling that uh, I think Biden referred to uh, Antifa. Not sure exactly the word he used, but it was just kind of a, a theory or a concept, philosophical trend rather than a than, than a very uh, destructive movement and. And so there's a lot of this, uh, a lot of the crosstalk was based upon. Strength. I thought I was disappointed that I think Trump could have had, when they talked about the you know the black issues and so on, that he didn't talk about free enterprise zones and mm-hmm. and he didn't talk about the historical black and you know uh, colleges and universities, you know the, the support for them and any quite a number of programs that were that that I think constructive and things that could have been done previously that weren't so I thought there were missed, missed opportunities to to say things and I think the rancor you know both sides got in the way and, and uh, my wife said you know halfway through the program she said you know this isn't good yeah. and, and, and I don't know if she was saying you know that we're going to lose the election or anything of that sort it's just that I don't think the public liked it and uh and I felt it wasn't very illuminating. I agree with that uh, 100%. Of course, uh, a subtle thing, but it, it always occurs, is that the questions many times are more important than the answers. And, uh, you know, to fo- focus on uh, black issues, to focus on climate change, these are all things that are part of the uh, progressive agenda. Uh, the real purpose of government is to protect us from internal and external predators and not to be addressing these other issues. So, to, in other words, let's address the Constitution. So, I think uh, Chris Wallace basically set the agenda and in a way that certainly supported uh, uh, Biden's narrative. Well, I think so. I mean, one of the examples you mentioned climate change, and, he, and from from the way that it was framed, do you believe in that? You follow or you accept the, you know, the, the climate science? Well, the notion is that that's a fait accompli. But you know, that Earth's on fire, and and and, and the notion that somehow uh, not only is global warming just out of hand, but somehow Trump's you know not taking guilt. For the hurricanes and the and the fires in California and so on, and that's just absolutely absurd. And and you know the notion that you know hurricanes are more frequent. Well, no, they're not. <laughs> uh, you know that fires are caused by uh, you know a couple a, a fraction of a degree of temperature change is insane. But there are there are a lot of there are a lot of statements that were made. And implications that were made—they're just, just ludicrous. But I think partly in the short time, covering so many subjects that you know you can't you can't have a in dialogue about climate science in, in such a right in, in such an argument. So uh, I, I was I was disappointed. I think a lot of people were. And going back to your original question, did it change any voters' minds? I don't think it, it changed very many people's yeah. minds, but. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, Professor, I'll, uh, before I uh, let you go, I want to remind our listeners about your latest book, How Everything Happened, Including Us. It's a fascinating read. I just really appreciated the, the book, How Everything Happened, Including Us. Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
Well, Bob, thank you for inviting me. Always a pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you found it illuminating and interesting. I certainly did. I hope you join us tomorrow. As I mentioned, we're going to visit with Michael Cannon. He's the uh, director of healthcare studies at the Cato Institute. We'll be trying to seek a way that we can have more uh, healthcare through private enterprise as opposed to government. We'll visit with Keith Flaw. He's the uh, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Dr. George Markovich will be joining us. He's my orthopedic surgeon. He replaced both of my knees in 2006. So we'll get a view from the trenches of what's happening in healthcare. And, and uh, the former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett, always staying tuned to what's going on. We'll visit with Bill as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs> so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs> <laughs>